Welcome to WADA, ADA Live Talk Radio, brought to you by Southeast ADA Center, your leader for information, training, and guidance on the Americans with Disabilities Act. And here's your host. and welcome to WADA ADA Live. On behalf of the Southeast ADA Center, the Burton Blatt Institute at Syracuse University, and the ADA National Network, we welcome you to the episode of ADA Live. The topic of today's show is accessible play areas. ADA Live listening audience, you can submit your questions about play areas at any time on adalive.org. My name is Pamela Williamson, and I am the Project Director for the Southeast ADA Center. At this time, I'd like to introduce you to today's speaker, Bill Botten. Bill is an Accessibility Specialist for the U.S. Access Board, and he was part of the team that developed the new combined guidelines for the Americans with Disabilities Act and Architectural Barriers Act. He specializes in access issues related to recreation facilities and outdoor developed areas and also provides technical assistance to building design in the construction industry. So, Bill, we are so glad to have you join us today. Thank you so much for having me. So, well, you know, the 2010 ADA Standards for Accessible Design went into effect on March 15, 2012, and one of the new areas in the standards addresses accessible play areas. It's so very exciting that children with disabilities can now play on an accessible playground with their peers. So can you explain to the listening audience who is covered under these standards and what is required for new and altered construction of play areas? I sure can. Again, thank you for inviting me to speak on this very important topic and to our listening audience that's joined us for this discussion. We learn so much from play as children. So many of our our thoughts and so many of the things that we develop into are, are from that early childhood play atmosphere and the Access Board worked on accessibility requirements for play areas for almost 10 years and these requirements are so important for the opportunity for children to participate in play with their classmates, with their neighbors at community parks and it promotes that socialization and integration of young children with disabilities and people without disabilities into society. And so the Access Board's work completed in 2000 and it covered um, facilities covered under the Americans with Disabilities Act, both Titles II and Title III. Title II covers facilities that are operated by state, city, county, local governments, and Title III's are places of public accommodations. Maybe a private daycare center would be covered under Title III. So they do affect the new construction of play areas um, from as you stated, March 15, 2012 on. And alterations of existing play areas, and we're going to touch on some of this uh, existing play areas issues in a, in a little bit here in this uh, presentation, but they cover both new construction and alterations that started as of March 15, 2012. So all new construction forward from now on should look at these requirements and comply with them for both Title II and Title III. But I also wanted to remind our listening audience that these requirements also apply to facilities covered under the Architectural Barriers Act. 
federal facilities, maybe on a Department of Defense site, or a General Services Administration, maybe a, a federal daycare center, also are required to comply with these new accessibility requirements for play areas. The 2010 design standards did implement eight new chapters of recreation facilities, all the way from amusement of parks and amusement rides to swimming pools and spas. And in that was play areas. And so play areas is one of the new chapters in Chapter 10, one of the new sections in Chapter 10 that do specifically address access and what is considered an accessible um, playground. Well, Bill, it's obvious that the Access Board has done a great deal of work on this, and it sounds like you're very passionate about it, too. So let's go into our questions for today. So, you know, we talk about accessible playgrounds, but can you tell us what is truly considered an accessible play component? Yes, the standard not only defines a play component, but also um, talks about how many are required and um, what types of play components are required. But the standard defines a play component as an element designed to generate specific opportunities for play or socialization or even learning. And play components can be a natural feature or they could be something manufactured. They may stand alone like a standalone slide or maybe they're part of a composite play structure, a large uh, elevated structure. So things like swings and, and spring riders and water tables or playhouses and slides and climbers are all among different types of play components. Um, the standard, as I stated, addresses um, a requirement of uh, how many are required to be accessible based on numbers provided by the uh, manufacturer or by the playground operator. An accessible play component is one that is located on an accessible route. A lot of times the requirements for the play component itself don't change. So uh, uh, a curly slide would always remain a curly slide. There's no a specific adaptation to make it an accessible one. But what it does trigger is this root, a clear floor space or clear ground space adjacent to this uh, accessible play component, and also a maneuvering space if it's in a confined space to turn around and get back on the accessible route and head to another one. So an accessible play component is one that's located on an accessible route and then meets the technical requirements that are found in section 1008.4. Remember that these standards are only minimums, and they're only going to meet the minimum requirements. You can follow the standards, but there's additional designs and features that can really add some great play value for kids with disabilities and kids without disabilities. Um, so an accessible play component is scoped, and they're scoped based on if they're ground level or if they're an elevated play component. At ground level, maybe a standalone slide or a spring rocker would be considered a ground level play component. And one of each type of ground level play components are required to be accessible. So if you had multiple spring rockers, at least one of those would be required to be accessible. At the elevated level, and an elevated play component is one that can be accessed from an elevated level, a platform or a deck that's elevated. So if a play component is only accessed by ground level and gotten off at ground level, it's considered a ground level play component. If it's accessed from an elevated level, it's considered an elevated play component. The play component is not counted twice, say in a uh, large composite play structure where you have an elevated slide that's accessed from this large elevated uh, composite play structure, but you exit it on the ground. 
the slide reaches the ground. It's not counted as both a ground level and an elevated. It's only counted as an elevated play component. So the trick is, is to understand how many elevated play components you have in your play area and also how many ground level play components are in your play area. And that way you can determine how many of those play components have to be accessible within your play area at both different levels, ground and elevated. Bill, that's all great information, and it really does help to explain more about what an accessible com play component is. So building on that a little bit, so can you explain to us uh, whether or not play components that have multiple stations or that can include more than one person using them at one time, are these considered to be one or two play components? A lot of times you see... Um, structures at ground level like, oh, maybe a fire truck or a playhouse or a train or something like a storefront that uh, allows children to interact and, and pretend that they're part of that unique feature. And that typically is at ground level, and they can accommodate a lot of different kids at one time. So say a fire truck or a train, for example, um, at ground level would only be considered one play component regardless of how many children can get on that and actually play on that play, uh, uh, structure or component at one time. So it only counts as one, and typically it's always going to be a ground level. Um, I have seen some elevated um, large structures like this, but um, it's typically these that I've already mentioned at ground level. Great. Thanks for expanding on that play component accessibility issue. So. Are ramps, transfer systems, and stairs permitted to be counted as play components? A lot of times uh, activity does occur on the ramps and the stairs, and, and if they're anything like my children, they would be on the roof plane um, of, a, of a composite play structure. But those specific features are not counted as play components. So if you have a ramp or a transfer system as a, a, uh, an elevated accessible route, um, uh, option uh, or the decks that kids run around on, those aren't considered play components. But if you had a crawl tube or you had a cargo net or something that does actually connect another play component but is a form of play, it could be counted. So a, a crawl tube that goes from one elevated structure across to another elevated structure, that crawl tube could be considered a play component but not steps, not ramps, not transfer systems, not decks, and roofs. The uh, standards exempt those from being considered as a play component. So even though the kids might think they're play components, the standards don't, don't agree. <laughs> That's correct. And oftentimes um, I'm a person that uses a wheelchair, and when these standards were coming through the, the process, my children were very young, and we visited a lot of play areas. And one thing that I found out was is that without an accessible surface, I really had no opportunity to interact with my children. But a lot of the play that we did was on the ramps because I could chase them and I could interact with them or, or when it was time to go home, finally catch them. Um, so they are used a lot of times as play, but the standard doesn't consider them technically as a play component. Well, ADA Live listening audience, if you have a question about accessible play areas, you can submit it at any time at our online forum at adalive.org. And now a word from our sponsor. 
The Access Board is an independent federal agency that promotes equality for people with disabilities through leadership in accessible design and the development of accessibility guidelines and standards. Created in 1973 to ensure access to federally funded facilities, the Board is now a leading source of information on accessible design. The Board develops and maintains design criteria for the built environment, transit vehicles, telecommunications equipment, medical diagnostic equipment, and information technology. It also provides technical assistance and training on these requirements and on accessible design and continues to enforce accessibility standards that cover federally funded facilities. For more information, visit access-board.gov or call 800-872-2253 or its TTY line at 800-993-2822. Well, welcome back to the second part of our program. Our topic today is accessible play areas. And Bill, we've got some more questions for you, and some of these have come in over our uh, website. So if an alteration is being made to part of a play area, does the entire play area need to be upgraded with accessible components and surfacing? Typically not. In an alteration, it's what you touch you fix. So um, the Access Board on our website has some frequently asked questions, and we answer several of these different alteration scenarios where we talk about if only the surface is changed, but the play components are not, and the play components are not accessible. There's no requirement to make them accessible, but the surface that you did touch and change would need to come in as an accessible surface. And conversely, if you touch the play component but not the surfacing material, the play component that was uh, inserted into this existing play area would need to meet the requirements for uh, this, uh, this now new play component, but the surfacing, if not touched, would not trigger um, uh, any alteration. So if you touch it, you fix it. Is that the short answer? It really is. That's the rule of thumb. It's, uh, it's uh, it not only in the built environment, but also you know those those built environment type characteristics for alterations are, are transmitted or translated into um, these recreation facilities to kind of mean the same thing. That what you do touch in an alteration, you do need to look at what comes back into that space um, and is accessible and meets the requirements of the standards. Well, then how do I determine if I have an accessible surface within the play area? That's always a really difficult question, um, and it's hard to know um, right off the bat without understanding what type of material you have, how long it's been there, and what its characteristics are, and how long its expected lifespan is. I always encourage people that I talk to about play area surfacing is to understand what type of surface you have. If you have a loose fill product, typically um, those get displaced. We've all gone by a play area and seen underneath the slide or at the, uh, underneath the swing how much of the loose fill product is being displaced. Well, you can imagine if that surface is displaced and there's a lot of irregularities, how difficult for a person with a mobility device to actually get across and use the elements within that play area. So the surface needs to be basically flat. There's cross-slope requirements and also running slope requirements, but also change in level requirements. And you cannot have a change in level within a play area greater than a half inch. So you can see that loose fill products, if put in a play area, need to be maintained. And the standard actually does say that um, the products that you put as a, as a ground surface covering need to be regularly and frequently maintained to uh, 
um, ensure continued compliance. And that's really important if you're using any loose fill type product. If you cannot support that loose fill product with enough maintenance to keep it accessible, it's not the right choice for your play area. There's uh, unitary type surfaces like poured in place rubber, uh, rubber tiles. There's hybrid surfaces out there now that combine some of both. Um, but the main thing is, is that when you're buying a surface, and it can be one of the largest costs in the play area, is to make sure that when you're receiving this material or investigating this material that um, you can get a compliance um, certificate from the manufacturer of the product that states it has passed the two reference standards that are um, spelled out in Section 105 of the ADA and also the Architectural Barriers Act. Um, and there are two reference standards from the American Society of Testing and Materials. ASTM is how that's abbreviated. So we reference two ASTM standards, one for accessibility, and it's called ASTM F1951-99, and 99 is the year that we reference of that standard. And then there's also a safety standard that's ASTM F1292, and we recognize both the 99 standard and also the 2004 standard. So when you get this new place surface or you're in the process of considering buying new place service, make sure that you can get a certificate from the manufacturer that it's passed both of these in the lab. But that's not enough. The standard doesn't specifically address having a field test, but it is so important to make sure that your surface, if an, even an existing surface that's been out there for several years, still meets these requirements and still will protect people from injuries, young children from injuries. If an injury happens on your play area, the first thing that happens is someone comes and inspects it. They're going to inspect it for safety. They're going to inspect it for this ASTM standard. But they're also going to inspect it for accessibility. So not only is it important to get the lab test certification so that you have them on hand, but also to understand how long your place surface is good for. How long is the, is the warranty good for? When do I need to consider rebudgeting, and how long would this surface last me? And how frequently do I need to test it? And was it installed correctly? That's why it's so important to get a field test of your um, surfacing um, and understand if you do have an accessible surface. There's lots of surfaces out there. We've even seen the artificial turf industry get into play surfaces, and I do find them pretty accessible. Um, so we see the synthetic turfs like you find on the athletic sports fields all the way to um, loose rubber, to engineered wood fiber, to the unitary mats, to these hybrid surfaces, and to rubber tiles. There are a lot of options out there, and they're all very costly. So it's important to see what you can support with your maintenance cycle, what your budget can support, but maybe there's an opportunity to be installed through volunteers or lower the cost to get a great surface that's not only really safe and protects your children, but also one that's accessible that allows all children to come and play. Well, Bill, it's obvious that a lot of thought needs to go into this kind of decision and really uh, from, very, from several aspects, including accessibility and safety. So, but that does lead into another question because there may be one surface area that's, that is used in one part of the play area and then another surface in another area. So can more than one type of play area surfacing be used? within the same play area? It can. The standard only requires the accessible route, the clear ground space, and the maneuvering space that those components require to be accessible to meet those required ASTM standards. Um, 
So you oftentimes see that they'll use a rubber type surface, uh, unitary rubber type surface along the accessible routes connecting these plate components required to be accessible. But then they'll use, um, in some areas in the south, they'll use sand or pea gravel in the north, um, or they'll use wood chips. Um, I don't recommend this. I don't recommend mixing surfaces. Um, a lot of times they'll migrate onto the other surfaces. They become slippery. The edges don't, they, they're not maintained, so you get this uh, two-inch lip where the surface change and it becomes a tripping hazard. Also, children with disabilities like to be able to run the play area, as you will, like children without disabilities. And that they're really, even though we define in the standards these minimum accessible routes, children play all over the playground. They're running freely. And to confine a person that uses a mobility device to these single routes to their own uh, play components, I think, um, does not do the integration justice that the standard really recommends. Well, again, you've shared excellent information with us, and we appreciate that. So we're going to pause now for a word from our sponsors, and we'll be right back. The Southeast ADA Center is your leader in providing information, training, and guidance on the Americans with Disabilities Act and disability access tailored to the needs of business, government, and individuals at local, state, and regional levels. The Southeast ADA Center, located in Atlanta, Georgia, is a member of the ADA National Network and serves eight states in the Southeast region. For answers to your ADA questions, contact the ADA National Network at 1-800-949-4232. Welcome back. We're talking with Bill Botten of the U.S. Access Board about accessible play areas. Bill, so we talked about, about, about path of travel uh, throughout today's uh, episode. So can you talk a little bit more about when those path of travel obligations are triggered? I sure can. Section 202.4 requires that when an alteration is being made to a an area that contains a primary function, an accessible path of travel must be provided to that altered area unless it is disproportionate to the overall alteration in terms of its cost or its scope as determined in criteria established by the Department of Justice. So the path of travel obligation uh, is established by the Department of Justice. And I can kind of tell you that, um, that when an uh, an area that contains a primary function and a play area is that the reason why children come and their parents come is to a uh, play and so it is an area of primary function so if an alteration to an existing play area occurs um, the portion of that existing play structure or the um, surface there is a requirement that uh, no more than 15% of that alteration cost needs to be spent towards getting children and their parents to these play areas um, whether it's from a site arrival point or a parking space, um, but the access to the play area is what we'd be looking at in the path of travel obligations. Um, that route that would get you to this now new altered area. So that really does bring up the fact that you may have a child with a disability, but you may also have a parent with a disability. So it really becomes an accessibility issue for the children and the parents. It really does. Um, as I earlier stated, I'm a person with a disability and use a mobility device, and my children were always running to the players. And I found early on that in order for me to interact and play with them, I had to find an accessible play area. But not only did I have to find an accessible play area, I had to find one that I could get to. 
I had to find one where I wasn't crossing the grass, that there was a, an accessible route from my parking space, the accessible parking space, all the way into the play area. And then within the play area, I could, uh, again, engage with my children in the play area. So it, it may be the caregiver, it may be the child with a disability, but it's so important to not only provide that accessible play area, but also link it to um, the site arrival points or uh, the, pl uh, the parking within that park so that uh, persons with mobility impairments do have an opportunity to actually come and play. That's great. That's great. So, well, we've had a question come in that I want to address. Can broken or older ground level play components be replaced without changing the surface? When when you have a maintenance issue, it's not considered an alteration. So if an S-hook goes bad on a swing or the seat of a swing goes bad and all you're doing is replacing that swing seat to be what it always was just because it was either vandalized or it wore out, um, those maintenance issues are not considered an alteration. Don't trigger the path of travel. Additionally, that if you were in a park setting and it had a play area and you were going in to alter the bathroom, say you need to create a, an accessible stall, that does not trigger the path of travel obligations. Even though you may want to use the restroom at the park, it's not the sole reason you come. You come to recreate or you come to play at the playground. Um, so not all, all alterations in, a, in a, a park setting typically trigger the path of travel, um, but it would be triggered again if you did alter your play area. So the difference is between an alteration and maintenance. Maintenance is just returning the play area back to its original design or intent. So all you're doing is maintaining the playground to be the same as it always was upon installation. Um, an alteration is where you're actually changing the original design or intent. You're adding play components. You're adding something new. You're changing the surface. Um, those are considered alterations. So the difference between whether, uh, when the path of travel obligations are triggered is really important to know the differences between maintenance and an alteration. So when you're maintaining a feature, so you, you're not making any significant changes. It's just as maybe a, a, an analogy we could use. It would be like me cleaning my house. I'm not making any significant changes. I'm just cleaning up. That's so, right. Versus you're, um, building you're trying something to new. Yep, oftentimes play areas are vandalized and um, you're just trying to return it back to its normal condition. Remember, that in the standards there is a requirement to maintain accessible features. And so if a grab bar fell off the wall, say, you'd have to replace that grab bar. That is typical maintenance that needs to be done on accessible um, elements or spaces and not considered an alteration. That's, a, that's excellent information for us and obviously something we want to keep in mind and I want our listeners to keep in mind. Well, Bill, as we get ready to wrap up today, where can our listeners get more information about requirements for accessible play areas? We've been fast and brief today, and so it's really important that if you're designing or, or as part of a group that's looking at uh, creating a community space for play or at your school um, with your PTA or um, you're a city activist and, and interested in making sure that your play areas are available for everyone. Um, there's lots of great information from the Access Board. To start with, our, uh, our website was given earlier on. It's uh, www.access-board.gov. And we have um, a technical assistance guide that's available um, off that website. We also have a 
play area frequently asked question that I highlighted earlier that really goes through if you're an existing play area and understanding what is that alteration, what is maintenance, goes through a lot of different uh, existing play area questions. We also have an archived webinar that's 90 minutes long that's available from the Access Board's website that will walk you through every single provision throughout these uh, play area requirements. Sometimes it's difficult to understand when you have the large book of the scoping requirements and the technical requirements and have I met or grabbed everything I need. Um, this uh, play area guide and the webinar are two ways to make sure you've got everything. And one last thing I'd like to highlight is that the Access Board funded a research project with the National Center on Accessibility on play area surface. And we did a, a multi-year study and looked at different surface materials, their cost, and how well they, they stood up to the accessibility and safety requirements. Those are all available from the Access Board's website. Well, Bill, this has been such an informative show. You've increased my knowledge. I know that our listeners appreciate it. So I would like to thank you so much to, uh, for sharing all of this information with us today. And I want to also thank our ADA Live listening audience. The Southeast ADA Center is very grateful for your support and participation in this series of WADA ADA Live broadcasts. Remember, you can submit questions about any of our ADA Live topics by going to adalive.org. In addition, the resources that Bill has mentioned today and, and also the resources from other shows are available on our website. And if you have any questions about today's topic or about the Americans with Disabilities Act, please contact your regional ADA center at 1-800-949-4232. Again, that's 1-800-949-4232. All calls are free and confidential. Now be sure to join us next month. On the first Wednesday, July 2nd, when we will be talking to Jack Humberg from the Bully Centers and Cherie Hoffman from the Southeast ADA Center about beach access. See you next month on WADA ADA Live. Thank you for listening to ADA Live Talk Radio. Brought to you by the Southeast ADA Center. Remember to join us the first Wednesday of each month for another ADA topic. And you can call 1-800-949-4232 for answers to your ADA questions.